much for being willing to go and being a testimony to us of God's grace at work in your life. We most definitely prayed in line with what you mentioned tonight, and it's just encouraging to hear of God's work in that way and trust that in eternity we'll see even more fully the fruit of, of her going and of our praying, uh, not just on this trip, but as God would direct her in the future to vocational mission work. Uh, we have prayed for years as a church, and we continue to pray, and we will not stop praying that God would do this work of grace in us that would compel some of us out of here to go take this glorious good news to the darkest, hardest, least reached places on the planet. We pray that way a lot as elders. I think you pray that way as a church family. Uh, May Clara and others be answers to that prayer uh, now and in future days and in future generations uh, until the Lord returns. There's a a job to do. May he use us to do it. Why don't you take your Bibles and turn to Titus 3, and uh, really the text tonight is so very fitting with what we heard from Clara and uh, God's grace at work through relationships in a ministry context. That's really uh, what we heard from our sister in the Lord. Titus 3, we come to the end of the book of Titus. It's been a, a sweet and encouraging study for me. I hope it's been helpful for you somewhere along the way as well. As Paul closes this very short letter to his understudy in the faith, his son in the faith, as he says in chapter 1, he, he does a very Pauline thing, a thing that Paul does at almost uh, the end of almost every letter. He rehearses relationships that are important to him, and he gives instructions to those people connected to those relationships uh, and uh, directs them into how they can be used of the Lord. And as you have heard uh, me say before, I know Bruce has made this a point of emphasis when he has taught, that Paul was a deeply relational man. He was deeply connected to his co-workers, uh, to those who supported his ministry, to those in the local church. And uh, as he ends this, one of his last letters of his ministry career, he puts that on display yet again. It really should be kind of a, an astounding thing. Um, my experience with guys who are super well-trained and really well-known and very well-connected in Christian circles usually don't have much time for relationships. That's been my experience. I'm just saying that that's the reality. Uh, there's been one exception in my life, uh, probably more than that if I gave it more thought, but there's been one outstanding exception in my life, and that's been Doug Bookman. You've heard him here in our pulpit, and he was at Grace Bible Church in Hutch in July. And two different times, he made the effort on that weekend to come over and see me and spend time with me. I was blown away. Like, who? This guy has so many things going in his life. He has so many uh, irons in the fire to manage. And he wanted to take time out of his schedule to, to invest in me. And that's exactly what that was. He was investing his time and his encouragement and his wisdom uh, in somebody that I, I would consider myself a son in the faith in that sense to him. It was an astounding and encouraging experience. And that is the Apostle Paul. He gives himself to these relationships when in, in reality, from a human perspective, it's the last thing he should do. He shouldn't really have time for this. He, he should be doing lots of other things. He's a busy man. 
in the work of the church. But he writes this letter of concern and direction to Titus, and now he wants to finish by further instructing Titus in how to continue in the ministry. Titus 3 verse 12 says this, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your, do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Relationships within the church family can be incredibly good and unbelievably hard. They can be joy-giving and encouraging and helpful, and they can be one of the hardest realities in life. Once a relationship within the church family gets toxic, then attitudes and behaviors become problematic in the body, and unity goes out the window, and the work of Christ and the way of Christ and the name of Christ get derailed and dishonored by the local church, and it is a sad take. If you would think about some things that are problematic in relationships in the church, so what are some marks of, of toxic relationships within the body of Christ? It really wouldn't take you long to think about that. Uh, so anything that relates to selfish ambition would probably rise to the top of your mind when we, when we get focused on me rather than on others in the body of Christ, or maybe an unwillingness to, to uh, assume the best about our brothers and sisters and, and to uh, be looking for every way in which they might possibly have offended me in something that they did or said or didn't do or didn't say, or just uh, sheer pride or excluding someone uh, out of something that you do or are involved in, or some kind of dishonesty or deception or uh, a failure in leadership to uh, uphold the standards of integrity. All those kinds of things become toxic in the relationships within the body of Christ. Another one that uh, I see far too often is not handling disagreements well. We're going to have disagreements as the body of Christ. None of us are Jesus, so we don't all have the same mind on things. And as we work through these things and try to figure out what Jesus' mind is on those things, we are going to have to work through disagreements well. And when we don't, that hurts our relationships. And in reality, we don't need any help in making relationships difficult. We come by that honestly, right? We, we bring that to the equation. What we need help with is how to have relationships that are healthy and honoring to the Lord and useful to the Lord. And that's what we see in these four verses, I think, is an example of healthy relationships which are marked by one key factor. One key thing drives and shapes these relationships to be glorifying to Christ and good for all who are involved. And I think these four verses are a, a small picture of what relationships in the church should look like and should be like. So what's that one key factor that shapes these relationships? You might be thinking, well, it's, it's love or it's humility or you might think of other things. Well, I, I think it's grace. It's the grace of God. It's the transforming work of God's goodness upon each individual to make them relationally beneficial and helpful to one another. This is how Paul began his letter. If you'll remember, as he first addresses Titus, he 
says to him, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now he ends the letter with that same emphasis, that it is of grace. And this is one of the themes that he's had throughout the letter. He's been at pains to teach Titus that all of this is grace. And so he said that in chapter 3, that we're saved by grace, not by any works of righteousness which we have done, but according to the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior. When that appeared, then we were saved. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he says, when, when the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And then he goes on to say, it didn't just save us, but it trains us. And that's been kind of the theme we've picked up on in the series in Titus, is that we're enrolled in the schoolhouse of grace. We're not just saved by grace, we're trained by grace. Once grace grabs you, once the goodness of God rescues you from your sinfulness, God refuses to leave you alone. He persists and pursues after you. He start, started a work in you. He's going to finish that work in you. And he's going to do it in accord with and by the means of his grace. In chapter 1, the elders are told to uphold sound doctrine from lies which display God's transforming grace. Chapter 2, Titus taught the different elements of the household, how they're to live in line with God's grace, evidencing his grace in those relationships. He then says you're to adorn the doctrine of God through your behavior, and all of it dependent on the unmerited kindness of God through his son. So if you know the saving grace of God, then you are being trained by the transforming grace of God. And this is then shaping two relationships, right? This changes how you relate to God primarily and then to one another secondarily. If you know this grace, it changes how you connect to one another. And we see that especially in Paul. It's completely and totally changed him. In the flesh and according to the flesh, Paul could have been the most self-concerned, self-promoting, self-conscious Christian celebrity of the first century church. He could have had all the platforms. He could have been at all the conferences. He could have been extended all the, the nice platitudes. He could have had all the, the big wigs write the foreword and, and all the great things for his books that he sent out. He could have made millions of dollars giving himself to be a Christian celebrity. At least that would be true in the 21st century American church. But instead of doing that, he commits himself and by the way, he wouldn't be the first nor the last to do that in the church, right? To, to use some kind of credibility and celebrity status so as to benefit himself. But Paul refuses to do that, and he refuses to, that, to do that because he's gripped by the grace of God. He's caught and compelled by saving and transforming grace. And now it changes how he interacts with others. I want to show you quickly four marks of transforming grace on relationships in the church. So if we know this grace and it's at work to change us, then our relationships in the church family will look this way. Not perfectly, but they'll have these marks, right? The first mark is in verse 12. It's mutually beneficial. It's mutually beneficial. These relationships transformed by grace are mutually Beneficial. It's a symbiotic reality to these relationships. There's a, a blessing and a benefit flowing in all directions for those who are in Christ. And it's all because we all know the grace of God. So Paul says in verse 12 to Titus, he says, I'm going to send 
Artemis or Tychicus, and he's going to relieve you on the island of Crete. So he says to Titus, when one of them arrives, and you're to come to Nicopolis, where Paul intends to spend the winter. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, if you happen to still have a physical copy Bible on your lap, you might look at that real quick. Crete is one of the big islands in the Mediterranean Sea, just south of Greece, and that's where Titus is. He's there ministering, setting things in order in the churches on the island of Crete. Paul is apparently somewhere in, on the mainland of Greece, just north of where Titus is at. And he's sending Tychicus or Artemis at some point to come down and relieve Titus. And when he does, he says, Titus, I want you to meet me at Nicopolis. Nicopolis probably isn't on your map. It's on the western side of Greece. So it's kind of northwest of Corinth. It's just across the Adriatic Sea from Italy. It's a really nice town. It's a wonderfully mild climate, a great place to winter. And Paul's learned the hard way, don't travel on the sea in winter, right? And he doesn't want Titus to do that either. And so he says, before winter comes, I'm going to winter at Nicopolis, and I want you to meet me there. Now, just think about that. I, I know it's just an easily read over fact point of Scripture, but think about what's going on. Paul's near the end of his ministry life. He knows that. He's writing his last few letters to his sons in the faith. He doesn't know what the future holds. He has labored hard for the Lord. He's been beaten within an inch of his life several times. He's been shipwrecked. He's been snake-bitten. He's been beaten for preaching the gospel by Jews in almost every town in Asia Minor. You know, a winter off would be okay. In my view, a winter off would be all right, right? But that's not how Paul thinks. Paul's always thinking strategically. How can I use my life and my connections to further the gospel? Likely, Nicopolis, being on the western side of Greece, is a strategic point from which I think Paul probably intends to launch from there to Italy and from Italy to Spain. And he says that in his letter to the Romans. I think he intends to use Nicopolis as a a jumping point, a launching point to take the gospel to people who have not yet heard. As he says in Romans 16, that's his intent, or Romans 15, excuse me, is to, to take the gospel where others have not preached it. And so he says to Titus, I want you to come join me there and help me and encourage me. It's a amazing expression of Paul wanting to redeem every part of his life. Even when he intends to winter and sit out the harder months to travel, he wants to be a blessing and be blessed by others. He wants Titus to come to him. We see in the letter to the church in Philippi and to the letter in Thessalonica that Paul often wants to come be with people so he can be a blessing to them and they can be a blessing to him. He says that multiple times. I think that's exactly what he's saying here to Titus. I want you to come to me because I want to be a blessing to you. I want to help you. I want to encourage you and edify you and further teach you. I want to take the truths of this little letter I wrote to you and drive them home all the further in our late night conversations around the campfire. But also, Paul is convinced that Titus will be an instant add to Paul. That Titus being with Paul will be an encouragement to him. The reality for Paul was that ministry was tough. The opposition was severe. The path was dark. The future was uncertain. The criticism was constant. The victories were few. The seeming defeats were many. 
and how much he needed the, the strengthening of an Aaron and a Hur to uphold his hands as the battle raged. And so he wanted Titus to come and, and be with him. This is the product, my point to you is this is the product of transforming grace. This does not happen apart from the grace of God, changing Paul and changing Titus. Titus is a blessing because of grace. Paul wants to be a blessing and a mentor to Titus because of grace. Paul refuses to let up or give up because of grace. As long as he breathes, he wants to pour out his life into others with everything he has. And that's what grace does to you. That's how the goodness and loving kindness of God, if it has truly gripped you, and it is constantly changing you, this is what it will make you like. Unwilling to sit on the sidelines, unwilling to watch life go by as you coast through your final moments in this world. And Paul's determined to invest in every way the Lord would allow him to do it. And especially in the body of Christ. So I ask you, do, does this mark your relationships, especially those within the church? Are, are those relationships mutually beneficial? Are you like Paul, thinking and planning for how you can be helpful and be a blessing to the lives of others in the body of Christ? Or are you caught up with murmuring, complaining, with disputing, with gossiping and struggling with the relationship side of what others aren't doing for you? You see, the grace of God makes us outward focused as we seek to be used by the Lord however he would choose. And then the second mark is that it's a, they're abundantly supportive. These relationships changed by grace are abundantly supportive. That's in verse 13. Paul says to Titus, be sure to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. These are probably the men who carried the letter from Paul down to Titus. And so they had brought this letter to him and Titus is reading it and this is Paul's stamp of approval on their ministry plan. They're going to go on from Crete to do ministry elsewhere. We don't know where, but they're going to go do ministry elsewhere. And so Paul says to Titus, make sure that as they go on their mission to take the gospel elsewhere, that they are filled up to overflowing with all that they need. Their mission is dependent upon the generosity of people like Titus and the churches of Crete. And so Paul says, be abundantly supportive of their efforts. We don't know much about Zenus. We know he's a lawyer of some sort. We don't have any lawyers in our church family, so I can say this, but this is the only lawyer mentioned in the New Testament, which is instructive. As, as Lewis Johnson says, at least we know that at least some lawyers can be saved. Since I'm telling lawyer jokes, you heard about the man who was dying, and as he lay on his deathbed, he called for his, his banker and his lawyer to come stand on either side of his bed as he lay there dying, and someone finally asked him, why do you want your banker and your lawyer standing on either side of your bed as you die? And he says, well, I want to be like Jesus Christ and die between two thieves. <laughs> you know I'm joking. The, the man, Zenus, had obviously been gripped by and transformed by the grace of God. He was a lawyer. That might be his occupation, but now he has given himself to the work of the gospel. He's partnered with Apollos. Apollos is much like Paul. In fact, we first ran into him in Acts 19. He came into Ephesus, and in Ephesus, he was, the, the text says, he was eloquent in speech and mighty in the scriptures. And he was 
useful to the Lord. He was further trained by Priscilla and Aquila and then sent out to do more ministry. And uh, you remember in Corinth, as Paul wrote that first letter to the church in Corinth, there was some kind of of schism, uh, at least a supposed schism between Paul and Apollos. And there were parties forming in the church of Corinth where some said, I'm of Paul, and others said, I am of Apollos. Well, this puts that all to rest, that 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 was not from Paul nor from Apollos. Apollos is now on a mission directed by Paul to bring this letter to Titus and then to go on from there to do more work. They're on the same team, working toward the same goal. See, that's how grace changes relationships. There's no territorial uh, party spirit in Paul or in Apollos. There's no competition going on here of who's the better preacher. In fact, Paul would say it's most definitely Apollos. He'd say, I'm weak when I'm with you in presence, Paul said. But Apollos is eloquent in speech. But it's not a competition. They're on the same team, preaching the same gospel, administering Christ's grace for the building of the church. And so he says to Titus, abundantly support these men. As they collaborate to go further for the gospel, support them. Be abundant in that support. The idea is not just to meet their needs, but to give them more than they need. To to give them more than they know what to do with is the idea. It's similar to what John said in his third letter when He writes to that church there, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey, listen, in a manner worthy of God. So John says to that church in 3 John, send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. What does he mean? Well, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. He obviously does not mean a pat on the back or an encouraging email or a nice text saying, I'm glad you're doing this, I support you. No, he means do anything you can to make sure they are well supplied. So that the last thing they have to think about in taking the gospel to the hardest places on the planet is how they're going to pay their bills and how they're going to supply food for their family. So be abundantly supportive. And that only happens as a result of God's transforming grace. You will only give abundantly to missions and to ministry workers and to ministries within the church family if grace is compelling you to do so. And the opposite side of that is our hesitancy to support missions or missionaries is not an evidence of grace, but of our own selfishness. As we count all our chickens and make sure we've got all our dimes lined up perfectly in our own expense account and make sure we're good stewards of all that God's given us and absolutely do that. But as we do that as a way to keep us from being abundantly generous to missionaries, that is not of grace. That is of the flesh. Paul says to Titus and John says to his church in 3 John, Support them in a way that is worthy of the name of God. For that is who they represent in their work. It's abundantly supportive. These relationships also are intentionally sacrificial. That's verse 14. Verse 14 is really the maxim or the the truth, the axiom of this whole text. So Paul says to Titus, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works 
so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. That's the, the truism of these four verses. By our people, he's speaking of Christ's people in Christ's church. He's speaking of those who are obviously connected to and committed to the work of Christ in his church. He says they're to learn to be intentionally sacrificial. Notice again, he's picking up that theme of, of good works that he's emphasized over and over again. That God's sanctifying and saving grace overflows into a changed life, which is filled with good works. That's what we saw last week in verses 1 through 8. Verses 3 through 7 are a wonderful exposition of the gospel. And then they explode. The, the gospel truth explodes into a life devoted to good works in verse 8. And, and don't get the order wrong. It's there as it is on purpose. If you put good works earlier in the gospel, you miss the gospel. But if you have no good works at the end of the gospel, you don't have a true gospel either. And so transforming grace produces lives devoted to good works. But notice this is a process in the church. This is there to learn to devote themselves to good works. No church is perfect at this, let alone Newton Bible Church. And if I, it'd be hard to list one, but if I could narrow down frustrations as a shepherd to, to one thing that sheep just drive you crazy with. It's this thought that somehow the church that we're a part of should be perfect. And that if, if this were different, then I would stay. But because that just can't get fixed, I'm out of here. No church is perfect, let alone ours, and we never will be. That's why we learn to devote ourselves to good works. It's a process of grace transforming us and changing us. And so Paul says to Titus, do these good things to Zenos and Apollos as, as exhibit A of this command of verse 14. The very thing you're going to tell the people in your church to do in verse 14, you show them how to do in verse 13. You abundantly supply their needs and show them how to be devoted to good works, especially cases of severe need. And this is all an overflow of God's kindness coming out of us. Knowing this grace, we can't help but be intentionally sacrificial. And then lastly, universally loving. These relationships are marked by those who are universally loving. We see that in how Paul talks in verse 15. He says, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Notice the universal language. It's obviously in the context of the church. Both the church that Paul's ministering in and the churches that Titus is ministering in. But it's in that context and it's, it's universal. Everybody in the churches are, to, are greeted and are greeting one another and sending grace and love to each other. In other words, this isn't an elite club of only those who have made the cut to talk to Paul, who are part of his, of his inner circle, who, who are part of his, his texting friend group. And if, you're not, if you didn't make that, then, then this doesn't apply to you. That's not what's going on here. Now, Paul is so changed by grace that he loves all those who are in Christ. And he's compelled by the grace of Christ to want grace extended to all those who are in Christ. It's an extension or a greeting of the grace of God from those in one location to those in another location who are in Christ. And as we heard from Clara, there's this unique bond from people who have never met each other before. 
who meet up in some kind of ministry context who are compelled by grace to be there. And there's an instant union in Christ and a, a joy in the fellowship of the body in that situation. It's a, a bond of grace. And so as Paul started the letter, he ends the letter with grace. If you looked at all of Paul's letters, you looked at chapter 1, you'd find grace. If you looked at the last chapter, chapter 6 of Ephesians, chapter 3 of Titus, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, chapter 4 of Philippians, wherever you went, you would find grace. He bookends every one of his writings with this key reality in the church, the grace of God. It is by the grace of God. It is through the grace of God and it is for the glory of God that all these things are true. So as you look at your own life through this text, I ask you again, what do you see? Where you find relationships marked by these things, be encouraged. That's, that's grace in you and that's grace in other people. Rejoice in that and foster that. Pursue that all the more. Where you find other things, know that that is not God working in you. That's you working out of you. You need the grace of God to change you and transform you to be mutually beneficial, abundantly supportive, intentionally sacrificial, and universally loving within the body of Christ. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your work in us because of and through your Son. We pray that you would further this grace in us, that your abundant kindness would be known and seen in how we learn to walk now in this grace that we know. We pray that you would mark our church with these things, that we would see the benefit and the support and the mutual love and joy that we see in this text. Father, would that be true in our church family as we have seen it true so often before? Would you build that further in us for your glory? Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God's grace to you. You're dismissed.